the resilience and resurgence of ISIS, uh, particularly in Iraq, cannot be understood solely as a function of ISIS's uh, resilience, but has to be understood in the context of Syria and its spillover. On this episode of TCF World, we invite Aaron Lund, Sam Heller, and Michael Wahid Hanna to talk about the need to demythologize ISIS. This is Thanasi Kambanis, and we're talking about ISIS, uh, and uh, we're, we're starting off with some, uh, some chit-chat about something that really bothers our senior fellow, Michael Wahid Hanna. Michael, what is that thing that bothers you so much today? Uh, the notion that ISIS, in any circumstance, is always winning. <laughs> Using Mosul was bad for ISIS. It's not good. Uh, and yes, they are resilient. Uh, they will go to the deserts. They will lose the proto-state and revert to being an insurgency and a terrorist organization. But from the perspective of international security, that remains a big plus. Uh, taking Raqqa will be a big plus. Uh, and um, I, I just think it's, it's crazy to always see ISIS uh, as three steps ahead of us, much smarter than us, and always resilient and always according to plan. Uh, I think that's wrong. Let's rewind for a second. So uh, going back now three years to when ISIS swept in and and took Mosul, uh, we've noticed a certain uh, quarter of the commentariat and also of the national security uh, decision-making class who will respond to anything that ISIS does, whether it is die in droves under American airstrikes or sweep in and take over a major Iraqi city, they will respond to it by saying, look at how this shows that ISIS is better at everything it does than everybody else in the contemporary history of the world. Uh, and, I, and I think that's actually not even a caricature because we saw some of this, some of this writing, this mythologizing of ISIS coming out even uh, in the last year when ISIS has really been relentlessly on the run. And I mean, one other point to add, the resilience and resurgence of ISIS, uh, particularly in Iraq, cannot be understood solely as a function of ISIS's uh, resilience, but has to be understood in the context of Syria and its spillover. So that theater uh, re-energized and uh, gave them uh, strategic depth, uh, gave them a platform to begin recruiting again. Uh, And without that, you cannot understand what happened in terms of ISIS's resurgence in Iraq. Uh, And so it's just, it's a big detail. You know, this huge regional shift had a big impact in terms of resuscitating their fortunes. So Sam Heller, you see this a little differently? Um, I mean, I don't know if I see it too differently. I mean, I think that it's worth pointing out that, you know, even if losing Mosul is not somehow going to work in their favor, uh, you know, there, it seems ISIS's resilience should not be underplayed. The fact that the U.S.-led coalition, our various partners on the ground, had done such extensive damage to this group, has killed so many of its members, and it's kept, you know, it's held together, it's, you know, it's remained coherent and effective, uh, I think that should be deeply concerning. Uh, and then, you know, I, my, I assume that whatever territory they lose, they're going to be a continued problem, albeit one of, a, you know, less efficacy and scale. How do the numbers stack up? I mean, you know, we've always joked that ever, ever since I was in, in Iraq during the early years of the U.S. occupation where we counted something like 50 or 60 al-Qaeda number twos 
who were uh, uh, successfully captured and killed by the U.S. forces. Uh, and we joked, you know, that, like how, how many how many number twos does this organization have? Uh, so even assuming a certain amount of numbers inflation in the amount of ISIS fighters killed, by this point, how big do they seem to have been as a fighting force at their maximum and how big do they seem to be now? By this point, on paper, we probably killed the whole organization a couple times over. Um, at the same time, I mean, I think that it's, it's indisputable that we've done serious damage to them, uh, that we have kind of worked our way through, uh, you know, through thousands of ISIS fighters who have been killed in the course of this, uh, in the course of this campaign, uh, and then they keep coming. And then they're still, you know, they still retain the kind of the same operational know-how and, uh, and just kind of command and control that, that keeps them kind of strong and makes them a formidable fight. I mean, and I don't disagree with that. I mean, you know, I don't know that our disagreement is huge. I think the tenor of the discussion is problematic. It also overlooks the ways in which the Iraqi army, with U.S. support and other allied support, did something that a lot of people thought was impossible. When Mosul fell, I mean, there, there were a good number of people who said, this is not going to be priority for a Shiite led political order in Baghdad. They're going to leave it be, and Mosul is going to rot. Um, and what we've seen in, since 2014 is a, a big shift in Iraq's commitment to this fight and, I think, the tenor of Iraqi politics. Those are, I think, I, who knows whether Iraq's government is in a position to take advantage of those openings and opportunities. That's a separate question. But I do think the nature of, uh, of Iraqi politics has changed in a way that I think can be a negative for uh, sustainment of ISIS in the future. I mean, even if I want to inject this single caveat, no, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree on the point that you know, jihadists are not magic. Uh, they're not somehow immune from the laws of gravity and physics. Uh, even uh, with all those emojis they use? Uh, I mean, they don't use them as effectively as some others. <laughs> <laughs> No, but it's nuts. I mean, the idea that what? That every loss that they suffer is somehow a win, that they get stronger, that like this will only further their narrative. It's, I mean, this is fantasy, I think. And I think that you've also seen a version of this with, uh, with Jebat al-Nusra uh, on the kind of the other side of Syria. The idea that as, you know, as rebels lose, as they lose more territory or they're forced into somehow, uh, you know, into kind of fighting this more asymmetric guerrilla fight, that this can only benefit Nusra, that Nusra will get stronger and bigger and whatever... This is not real. I think it's better equipped to survive something like this than other groups. I think that it has an appeal that can maybe be expanded, but it also, you know, it depends on real things. It depends on territory in which it can organize and train and from which it can uh, recruit. You know, it depends on access to the Turkish border through which, you know, it passes supplies. It depends on the broader opposition from which it vampires out the weapons that we give them. Americans, uh, you know, it depends on all these things to keep strong. And then if it loses them, if it's forced to resort to this kind of run and gun thing out of the mountains and the caves, it's going to be weaker. That's just how it works. So the ISIS's magic school would hold that ISIS grew so fast and held on to Mosul for three years because they are amazing at what they do. I think they are amazing at what they do. I mean, but but they're still losing this war. So did they do so well because they're so great at it? Or did they do as well as they did for as long as they did because nobody else cared that much 
about fighting ISIS until very recently. No, they, they, they gained because everyone else was weak and distracted by other things. But I mean, I think the, and the idea that their narrative is getting stronger and they're getting more resilient, there will be more attacks abroad, and yes, maybe, sure, okay. But, but that's an incredibly Western-centric, American-centric, European-centric perspective. I mean, this is also about Mosul, isn't it? This is about people in Iraq and how you put Iraq together. And how you make Syria work in one way or another. People it's, in Raqqa, people in Mosul, people, the millions of people who people, actually live under ISIS rule. And Libya and other places that would be threatened by them if they had this territorial base. I mean, there will be bombs in, in, in Europe and in, in the US and in the Middle East. And there will be continued insurgencies and so on. But that's, you know, that's, a, that's, that's something that happens with globalization, I think. That's something we have to deal with in other ways. Well, and I think there is a legitimate discussion to be had in 2017... Uh, almost 16 years after 9-11, about this question of what began as the global war on terrorism. This many years later, uh, we have many open conflicts that provide a a real opening for uh, militancy and jihadism, and we don't really have a a solution to that. That that remains. You know, the one thing that that I still am hesitant about is that ideological clarity and a, a kind of purist fanatical militancy it is compelling and this this uh this idea that isis has had much more so than other jihadist groups mind you right because of their embrace of statehood uh as a as a goal instead of this this anti-statehood goal that so many jihadi groups had they did draw a lot of foreign fighters and those numbers which i mistrust but if they're even half true are alarming that even years after the caliphate was was revealed to be the sort of maniacal bloodthirsty awful thing still drawing thousands of volunteers from uh western countries and eastern countries and asian countries and african countries that is frightening and it does feel to me like we don't have equally compelling alternatives from a non-jihadi ideological school that, that are just as ferocious in their, in their clarity. And we don't know what that looks like in the future. I mean, one of the things about uh, the foreign fighters in the Afghan war, in Bosnia and, and other locales, uh, is that many of them went back to their home countries and went back to other places uh, and didn't actually revert to violence. I mean, there was a difference between a transnational militant jihadi and a foreign fighter. And to some extent, ISIS has tried to collapse that. Uh, and I, we don't know if that holds. It will probably hold for some people. Um, but we don't have a good grasp on that. And we, we still see Afghan, veterans of the Afghan war sh- popping up in these theaters and, and being major players this many years after, um, after the war in Afghanistan. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us for this edition of the Foreign Policy podcast from the Century Foundation. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm Sam Heller. I'm Aaron Lund. And I'm Michael Hanna. Till next time. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about Century's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. 